So we are in first, we're going to do first and second Peter tonight, I hope. And we are really on, we're winding down. Uh, we're making it to Revelation super fast. Uh, John's epistles, Jude, and Revelation. And then after Revelation, I'm going to do a um, kind of a, a survey of eschatology and look at the, the overall scheme of things uh, according to uh, Daniel chapter 9, especially, and how it um, comes together with the book of Revelation. And uh, we'll talk about different periods of time, events, and of course the consummation. And I think it'd probably be good, too, to do something on the millennium, which is, um, we have details from the scriptures, but how it's all going to be, it's going to be kind of a, for us, It'll be a physical, metaphysical reality. Uh, for others, it seems a purely physical reality. And so it's, uh, there's some mystery there with the millennium. But um, that's, the millennium is the one thing that I'm really looking forward to, especially as the political climate does what it does uh, and have this contrast between a true theocracy after man has been so effective at messing things up. And so, well, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll pray that all things come together in the booth. If not, you will be without slides. So, worse things have happened, right? All right. Well, Father, we do love you, and, and I thank you that regardless of what happens here at Calvary, we can still worship you, we can have the teaching of the word. We can do all of those things in the dark or at candlelight. Um, it's not a big production here. And if the electricity goes out, we'll manage. And uh, we thank you, Lord, for just the simplicity that we have in Christ and uh, the beauty that we have in the fellowship of your people. And uh, so, Lord, we just appreciate you. And we pray, Lord, that tonight that um, you would help us to have a better grip on the epistles of Peter and that we'd know our way around a little better, where to find things and how to process things, and that our lives would find themselves in more conformity, Lord, to your will. And uh, So, Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you want me to shut it down and restart it, or is it... Okay. So that they can see what? No, but it's not coming up on the screens. Oh, okay. Well, I would do that because on your device, then you have to look at me. You can just look at the device. And uh, not as cringeworthy. So. Huh? Oh, that's right. You want to borrow mine? <laughs> Okay, well then let me make an adjustment here because it, why it has three different interfaces is really strange to me. Um, okay, all right, I'll work with it. So um, I do need to make a correction though because it's, uh, it's first and second Peter. People can watch me correct it online there if you're watching online. First and second Peter. History of Redemption, 
Let's get into our usual, our uh, author. Um, when we talk about authorship and date and those things, just as a reminder, we talk about internal evidence and external evidence, that which is internal or found in the immediate text, uh, and then sometimes even within the whole context of the Bible, that would be internal. And then the external evidence is what we learn from history, the early church fathers, their input, um, also uh, events, historical events that took place um, that may not be mentioned in the scripture, but parallel the same time. So when we come to the author, we want to look at the details inside the text, as well as uh, what the early fathers of the church understood. Um, so internally, um, as with most of, as with all of Paul's letters, unless, of course, Hebrews belongs to him. Um, Peter identifies himself in the first verse of both books, First and Second Peter. Uh, in both of them, he identifies himself as an apostle. So we're not talking about some other Peter that may have uh, been around at that time, but it's the apostle Peter. Uh, the author claims to have been an eyewitness of the sufferings of Jesus, chapter five, verse one. Uh, in 2 Peter 1, 14 through 18, uh, this is the Peter that stood with Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. So we're getting very specific, aren't we? Uh, the apostle watched Christ suffer, uh, was on the mountain of transfiguration. Um, another interesting detail uh, about um, looking at authorship, when we look at the sermons from Peter in the book of Acts, and we look at um, his letters, we find that there's this crazy similarity between the two. And it also says something about Luke's um, uh, recording of history. Is uh, You squared away, Margaret? <laughs> Is Luke did not record what we might say uh, as his retelling of Peter's sermons. He recorded them as they were. So what we have is we have Peter's words, the way he used them, and um, uh, the, the style of speaking, his style of writing. Uh, Luke records it just as it is. And so his sermons and acts are just like his writings uh, in Peter. And uh, many of the words, phrases, are unique to Peter uh, in his sermons and in his writings. That's a very interesting... Um, I can't say that I discovered that myself, uh, somebody smarter than me had made that observation and then uh, had pointed out uh, various things with, uh, between the two. So, Also, something that's very important is uh, the author of the epistle exerts apostolic authority when he's instructing pastors. Okay? And then, of course, when he is talking about uh, instruction in general. Uh, the instruction is also interesting that Jesus gave to Peter in John 21, verse 16, is very similar to his instruction to pastors in 2 Peter 3, 1. Okay. So some people um, have been critical of Peter's uh, authorship of the book, but when we look at all of the facts surrounding it, uh, all of the skeptics, their arguments just fade away. And uh, this is the Apostle Peter, for sure. As far as the external evidence goes, uh, it's, some of this is internal, 
but it's an exchange between the two books, is in 2 Peter 3.10, Peter refers back to 1 Peter, okay? the letter that I wrote to you previously. Okay? And it reminds us of uh, Luke's discussion between his gospel and the book of Acts. He refers back to a previous document that he had written to Theophilus. Um, Jude 17 cites 2 Peter 3.2, verifying its uh, first century origin. Uh, the earliest manuscripts of the, um, the epistles of Peter, they bear his name as the author. And then, of course, uh, as with many of the other New Testament books, the early fathers attribute authorship to Peter. Polycarp, one of the earliest, um, somebody called Pseudo-Barnabas, Clement of Rome. Uh, most scholars believe that this is uh, Paul's friend Clement. Okay, Clement of Rome. Uh, Irenaeus, Cyril of Jerusalem, Eusebius and Augustine all refer to Peter as the author as they're quoting from his book. Let's look at some dates. Okay, it's kind of fun. Uh, it, well, it may be fun for me, not so fun for you, in uh, gathering all these details to try to, you know, you know, create just a, a narrow margin of where uh, Peter's letters fit into everything. And it's kind of a fun exercise, um, test of your knowledge of New Testament stuff, of history. Uh, so I, I enjoy it. So let's, you can uh, humor me here while I talk about this. Uh, the slide says that uh, 1 Peter was written at about eighty sixty four. How many of you guys are looking at slides at this point? Oh, Okay. Um, the, uh, the date for 2 Peter is about AD 66. So 64 for 1 Peter, 66 for 2 Peter. So we would say that uh, Peter obviously wrote his letters before his death. I don't know why we have to say that. Uh, he died in, right at about AD 66, which had occurred in the middle of um, uh, Emperor Nero's persecution of the church. That persecution began in 64. A.D., and it ended in 68 A.D., of course, when he killed himself. Um, uh, Peter also must have written after Paul's letters that expound on the long-suffering of God in, a, in a, what we might call an eschatological context. Um, you know, he is, uh, he's long-suffering. Uh, he's not wanting to any perish, uh, but to come to the knowledge of the truth, repentance, that sort of thing. Um, Peter... Uh, refers to Paul's letters talking about these things. So if you're going to refer to a letter uh, that's already written, yours obviously comes afterwards. He does that in 2 Peter 3, 15 through 16. Now the clearest reference to, uh, in Paul's letters talking about the long-suffering of God in terms of salvation is Romans 2, 4, which was written in 58 or 59. So we're coming up from the bottom, as it were, uh, pushing the date forward, but we've already set a cap on the top, right? Okay, before his death. Um, in 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, uh, Peter addresses his letters to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, the one that we're interested there mostly is Asia. It's to Asia. Okay, and in 2 Peter 3.15, Peter says that Paul had written letters to these areas, but the one that we want to focus on is Asia Minor. 
And, uh, and so, of course, Paul had written to them at an earlier date, uh, early enough for Paul's letters to be, of course, written, sent, copied, and then distributed. Peter did not get them, read them uh, the next month. You know what I'm saying? Okay, so time had lapsed. Peter mentions Asia, which would include the letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians, and they were written around 60 AD. So we're pushing the, the date further forward for the, the letter of Peter. Um, yeah. And then there's some uh, historical uh, concerns about uh, persecution in Asia Minor, which most historians say is kind of a, we might say a shockwave from what was happening in Rome that eventually made its way uh, to those people. And then Peter responds to something he knew about going there. So what that does is it just pushes the date a little bit further forward, a little bit further forward. And so with all the crunching and stuff, we put 1 Peter about 64 AD and then 2 Peter at 66 AD. There's a lot more details, but um, yeah, I don't want to drown you in them. So 64, 66, what do you guys think? Sounds okay? All right. You think 65? Okay. For First Peter? Oh, okay. You just hit the middle? All right. Okay. Yeah. Um, I got to get used to this teaching from this format. So all we've done, uh, special considerations. One of the interesting things is to consider is Peter's location. And then uh, Peter also, um, a word that I picked up from a theologian is inscripturates uh, or makes, uh, affirms that someone's letters are scripture. And that's Paul's writings. Uh, Peter inscripturates Paul's writings. Let's first talk about Peter's location. Um, Peter, the, the place from which he wrote the letter seems to be written in code. Uh, as if he's trying to hide exactly where he was in 1 Peter 5, 13. Peter says, she who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Okay. Uh, Mark, the uh, cousin, is it cousin or nephew, I forget, of Barnabas. Um, he says, she who is in Babylon, she is probably a reference to the church. Uh, Babylon, what's up with Babylon? Uh, was Peter in Babylon, literally? Uh, probably not. Peter, or not Peter, but Babylon is most likely a reference to Rome, okay, or to Rome, uh, where Christians were suffering firsthand uh, from Nero. Uh, Babylon is both a literal place, of course, and a symbol of, of paganism. And Rome was currently uh, the epicenter of paganism, whereas Babylon used to be the epicenter of all that. And uh, so, yeah, Peter, like Paul, was a well-known leader of the Christian movement. Uh, so many historians believe that Peter is giving his location in code to conceal that location just in case his letter was intercepted by government officials and they would know that one of the primary key leaders of the Christian movement was actually in Rome. And then instead of searching the empire, uh, they would narrow their search to the capital. And uh, so, interesting.
kind of thing. Babylon also seems to be a reference to Rome in the book of Revelation. Uh, some scholars say, no, it's, it's literally Babylon. Other scholars say, no, it's mystery Babylon. And uh, so it's not literally Babylon, but it's the hub or the epicenter of a religious rebellion, which would be Rome. Others actually would even argue that it's Jerusalem. Okay? I think it's Rome. Uh, I think that fits best with uh, Daniel chapter 2. And we'll discuss all those issues another time. So, um, Anyway, during the, the life of Peter, uh, literal Babylon was no place to write home about, well, let's write a letter from. Uh, what would Peter be doing in Babylon at that time? Uh, it wasn't um, a big deal, and neither was it a hub for persecution at that time. Persecution in Babylon, or at least in that area, took place later on in history, and Peter would not have been alive for that. So anyway, it'd be strange to have Peter in Babylon. And then also another argument for Peter being in Rome is uh, who did he say was with him? Mark. But then in the very next verse, he says somebody else, Silas, Silvanus. Okay. Uh, where were those two guys around the time of Paul's uh, writing of the pastorals? Mark certainly was not in Babylon. Okay. Uh, he was actually, uh, it, Paul told Timothy to do what? Get Mark, for he's now useful to me. So did he want Timothy to travel from Ephesus to Babylon and then bring him from Babylon to Rome? I don't think so. Uh, I think that if Mark wasn't uh, in the general location where uh, Timothy was, then that would just be a complete waste of time. So uh, Silas was a common companion of Paul's. Hey, look at that. Let's see if I can get this up here. It's already up there, so let me do this. Okay. Good job, you guys. Did you call Roger? Who are you on the phone with then? Okay, all right, all right. Okay. Uh, so anyway, it just seems best to say that uh, Mark had made it to Rome as he was uh, beckoned and Silas was there. And uh, that just makes much more sense. So Peter was probably in Rome hiding. Also, in 2 Peter three fourteen through 16, uh, I said that Peter inscripturates the writings of Paul and what he does is he elevates all of Paul's literature that he wrote to the churches to the same level of authority and inspiration as all of the Old Testament prophets. So whatever authority Moses had, whatever authority Isaiah had, or Jeremiah, or any of the other prophets, he's saying that Paul has equal authority to all of them. And uh, that would be true. Um, I just lost my train of thought as that stuff is flickering up there. Um, when Paul discusses the nature of apostles and prophets uh, in the context of the scriptures, he essentially tosses himself into the mix with all of the other apostles. Apostles, prophets, Old Testament, New Testament, they're all on equal ground when it comes to inspiration. Okay, Directly from the Lord. 
mutual recognition among them, even between Peter and Paul. And um, so I think what we have to conclude um, with uh, the text is from John 16, 13. Uh, there's two interesting things in there that Jesus said. He said that um, the Holy Spirit will remind you of all things that I've said. Well, that would be for the recording of Jesus' teachings in the gospel, right? And then he says also that the Holy Spirit, uh, when he comes, he will guide you into all truth. That would be in reference to all of the epistles, leading the apostles in new covenant truth for the sake of the church. And uh, So I would say just as Jesus promised, uh, we have the fulfillment of all those things in the epistles, in the gospels. Amen? All right. What about doctrine? Doctrine. Peter suffering and uh, eschatology. Nothing very new, uh, but definitely a contribution. Whatever else may be said, uh, as far as what Peter contributes, uh, he contributes to our understanding, our theology of suffering in, in 1 Peter. Okay. There, of course, throughout the letter is uh, general instruction. There's exhortation. But suffering is more frequent in 1 Peter than any other book of the Bible. Okay, now, there are other churches that suffered. We talk about Hebrews, Jews persecuting Jews, uh, Thessalonians, Gentiles persecuting Gentiles. Um, and there's a discussion of suffering, but it's in brevity, uh, but not so with 1 Peter. Uh, every chapter in 1 Peter is addressing suffering of some kind. Okay? And um, so... Something was happening in Asia Minor. And there must have been a serious overflow of the Neroan persecution. Peter talks about suffering for the praise, honor, and glory of Christ, chapter 1, 6 through 7. Suffering for doing what is good, chapter 2, 19 through 20. Suffering in marriage, even. Uh, Peter does, he chimes in once uh, in regard to. Uh, marriage, but he begins in verses one, th- <clears throat> in 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 chapter, excuse me, in chapter three, verse one through six. It's a, a woman who a, a believing woman who is married to an unbelieving man, and she's in in this awkward position of serving the Lord while submitting to an ungodly person. And uh, there's instruction there for that. Of course, there is a bit of instruction to husbands as well, which is precious. Um, but it's suffering in marriage. Uh, Also, for righteousness' sake, chapter 3, verses 14, he says, for the will of God, uh, 3, 17 and 4, 19. He says, suffer in order to identify with Jesus, chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, chapter 12 through 13, and for the name of Christ, chapter 4, verse 14, and then for the faith, chapter 4, verse 16. It is the epistle of suffering. And so, keep in mind, the audience that Peter wrote to was to the churches, some of them, that Paul planted in Asia Minor. So, yeah, those that Paul knew very well. So Peter, of course, his intent was to encourage uh, those believers and to console them by giving them the purpose and, I would say, the end result of suffering. Purpose being primarily uh, the glory of God and the end result is the purification of the saint. What did Jesus learn through suffering? Author of Hebrews says, obedience. That's right. Yep. Also, wow. 
I'm afraid it's going to mess up my screen too, going back and forth. Real quick about eschatology. Uh, both letters have plenty to say about eschatology. Um, yeah, Peter, uh, he says, the end of all things is at hand. Chapter 4, verse 7. It's like what James says in chapter 5, verse 8. He says, the coming of the Lord is at hand. Uh, that phrase, at hand, it doesn't matter where you look in the scriptures or in um, extra biblical Greek literature, at hand always, uh, without exception, means near or sudden. Near or sudden. Uh, we see that, we, we call it the, the doctrine of imminence. Okay, that this, the, the coming of Christ, the, the rapture, his appearing in the clouds, it could happen at any moment. And it is for us not to worry about the exact moment, uh, but to worry about the, the conduct, uh, the condition of our lives and our heart, to be ready. But at hand, you remember when John said, the kingdom of God is at hand, and he spoke of the Messiah's coming at hand, and he meant at hand. And when the king shows up, there's a kingdom. Amen? And it didn't manifest, it wasn't in its full manifestation but when Christ walked on the scene, the kingdom of God was there. Um, and then also throughout both epistles, the discussion of Christ's coming is throughout. Like 1 Peter 1, 7, he begins with it. And also verse 13. It's also chapter 2, verse 12. Chapter 5, verse 4. And then 2 Peter, uh, again at the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 16. And then three, uh, chapter 3, 10 through 12. So he couches all of his theology we might say, in eschatology. Everything that he says is looking forward to this one great event. Paul was the same. And if the apostles were that way, I think that we most definitely should be that way. How many of you guys are excited about Jesus coming back? How about before the election? <laughs> All right, let's look at an outline for First Peter. Um, so in, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, we have an, an explanation of suffering. Uh, an interesting truth that we always have to chew on is that suffering is appointed for us. The scriptures say that the scriptures are, or that suffering is appointed for us a number of times. That God has laid life out uh, for the believer with suffering. And, um, and I, if we study suffering throughout the scriptures, we find that God uses it to his end and for our good. Uh, Paul was um, introduced to the faith. The Lord said, I'm going to show him how many things he must suffer for my namesake. When we go through the Gospels, how many times does Jesus uh, tell the apostles that suffering awaits them uh, because of who they trust and who they've identified with? There's exemplification of suffering. It's in Christ, chapter 1, 13 through 3, verse 12. Uh, exhortation to suffer. Uh, it is for, it's something for Christians. Now, by uh, the exhortation to suffer does not mean go out and look for it. Okay? But Paul says that anyone who names the name of Christ will suffer persecution. So if you take a stand for Christ, uh, his morality, his truth, you will suffer. Uh, of course, in different degrees. In the context of which Paul says that, it's in the context of sharing the gospel. He's telling Peter, uh, you have been with me and you've seen how I've proclaimed the gospel. Uh, 
And he goes on, then he says, and anyone who names the name of Christ will suffer persecution. So if you name the name of Christ publicly and you're preaching Christ accurately, uh, you're going to suffer for it. Okay? It'll just happen. So name the name of Christ and um, go get yourself some suffering. <laughs> Expectation for the sufferer, it is for glory, encouragement in suffering. How many of you guys have met people that need encouragement through their difficulties? Yeah, even people that have a even people that have a theologically informed mind. Uh, as soon as they're touched by experience, uh, they need people to come alongside them, right? I've heard people say, "I know what the Bible says about suffering, but this hurts," so it's touched them. And more than their psyche. What about Second Peter? Just as suffering is the theme of First Peter, knowledge is the theme of Second Peter. Knowledge. Okay. Uh, there's different words for knowledge in the Greek, and they have different. Um, um, they they mean, of course, in their the base definition, the root definition, they mean the same thing, um, but. There's broader uh, definitions for each. And the one that we're interested in in, in um, Second Peter is, is epigenosis. Okay? Not simply gnosis, uh, just uh, uh, intellectual knowledge. Uh, epigenosis is experiential knowledge. And that's very important. In fact, Ravi Zacharias a couple years ago said that if, if this next generation does not experience Christ, he said, we will lose them. Uh, we have all the apologetics for the faith that we need. They're sufficient to defend the faith in all of the marketplace of ideas. We have enough. Uh, and we stand at the top. And, but he says, until people experience Jesus for themselves, he said, uh, it won't matter how much apologetics you have. It must touch them in the core of their being. And I think that that's what Second Peter is about. It's really about knowing Jesus. And um, so in the epistle, it's epigenosis. Um, yeah. Uh, a few thoughts on that. Um, just defining the two. We talk about cerebral knowledge, uh, knowledge that is gained through study. That would be gnosis, okay? Not epigenosis necessarily. Um, Peter's talking about intimacy gained through experience, uh, knowledge of Christ, we might say, through fellowship with Christ, in the similar way that, um, or in, in um, the difference between, we might say, knowing about someone, like we know about Abraham Lincoln because we've studied his life, we've read history, and that being different than actually knowing someone personally like a best friend or a spouse. That's the difference. And, uh, it's relational. And then also in the book, it's also talking about uh, the knowledge that is being uh, professed and taught by false teachers. And so he's holding the two knowledges in opposition to one another. There's good knowledge, experience with Christ, and then there's bad information that's out there that's destructive. And um, so... 
Chapter 1 is this relational knowledge. Chapter 2 is this false teacher's uh, information. Chapter 3, um, it's the knowledge that is discovered in God's word that can be trusted. Uh, it's his promises that should be looked forward to. And um, things that our lives should be found in conformity to. So we could say in brief, Peter, Second Peter is about knowledge for intimacy with Christ. Chapter 1, uh, knowledge of heresy against Christ. Chapter 2, and knowledge for purity in Christ, chapter 3. But I'll give you a more detailed outline this way. Uh, Knowledge and its principles, chapter 1, so provisions, uh, progress, and pledge. Uh, The provision is all things pertaining to life and godliness through Christ. That's how Peter begins there. Uh, It's an amazing section. And then what we have, it's all in our possession through faith in Christ, But then as we walk with Christ, there's this progression of experiencing these things and godliness. So the the progress has to do with the virtues of Christ being manifested in the life of the believer through walking with him. And then there's the pledge of knowledge. It refers to the the fruit experienced through intimacy, uh, through this relationship. Chapter 2 is knowledge and its perils. Uh, That's the doctrine of false teachers. And their heresy specifically in chapter 2 is denying the Lord who bought them. And then they go into destruction. Uh, So we have the the destruction, the consequences of heresy. um, And and then he he gives us this um, panoramic view of heretics since the very beginning. And that God has never tolerated false information about himself and things like that. And then he goes through some of the deeds of heretics uh, what, how heretics behave. How's that? So uh, I think it's true when you look at many of these false teachers that have fallen. I could give you a laundry list of them over the years, uh, especially televangelists and those that have come to the top. But even those on, on smaller levels that have had their little followings, these heretics, uh, there's something consistent with all of them. And it usually has something to do with money and a sexual morality. Uh, it's just the thing. So anyway, and then uh, knowledge and its promise, chapter 3, truth assailed, truth attested, truth applied. Uh, truth, uh, no matter uh, where you go, what context you're in, somebody is going to attack it, right? Somebody's going to attack it. So Peter reminds us that in the last days, scoffers will come They're going to doubt the truth of God's word. Uh, Not only will they doubt it, but they'll make fun of it. How many of you guys run to those people? Okay. And I love the discussion that he has following that. He gives them the benefit of the doubt. He says, they've just forgotten. But then he says that they're they're willingly ignorant, which means dumb on purpose. Um, Because as Romans chapter 1 says, uh, what may be known of God has been manifest to them. And so they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and then they present this, this lie, this stupidity to the world. And because the world is blind, they buy it. They eat it. So, but then as uh, time goes by, uh, the word of God and the truth contained in it, it always bites back, doesn't it? Uh, I think probably the most uh, obvious thing in this regard is the, um, the evidence of like uh, archaeology, uh, where people have, the skeptics have said, well, 
we haven't found this and therefore it doesn't exist. And then it seems that within a few years after that, uh, the discovery comes out and then we have evidence for it. Another thing is um, the, uh, the historical record that Luke has given us. And Luke has been in the past criticized as a terrible historian who made up words, made up events, and all of this stuff. And all of the criticisms brought against Luke in the past have all been settled from archaeology. And so it turns out now the great skeptics of, of Luke, uh, they've vanished, and now historians say that Luke is a first-rate historian. And uh, so I kind of like it when they get egg in their face. But the Word of God, it, uh, it bites back. So, And then it talks about truth or knowledge, truth applied. Um, yeah, living in anticipation of the truth, looking forward. As I said before, uh, there's this great um, eschatological expectation in Peter's writing. Reality is coming, and the believer is to look forward to it. Amen? Okay. All right. Well, that was kind of fast. I got a couple of minutes. Anybody have any questions? And none of this Genesis 6 stuff. which is a fun discussion, just, just leads on and on. So, Some of you are like, Genesis 6. I thought we were talking about Peter. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, um, I don't know why. Um, I've thought about that too. Why do we only have two epistles from Peter? Why are they so brief? Mm-hmm. Right, right up to the... The threshold, yeah. What's that? They are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, uh, one uh, theologian said that in, in the book of Acts, we have Peter the fisherman. But when we get to First um, and Second Peter, we have Peter the theologian. Uh, he's grown in many ways. But it could be that one of the things that Peter excelled in was speaking and not writing. Uh, it even says that Sylvanus copied the letter for him. He was the, the person who wrote it for him. Um, of course, it was dictated to him. Um, so maybe opportunity. Uh, maybe the Lord primarily chose Paul uh, using the skill of Paul that he had to communicate. Um, yeah, I don't know. So why didn't we hear more from John? Why was he chosen as the the apocryphal, not apocryphal, apocalyptic writer, and then gives us three short letters that are impossible to outline. Um, I was reading uh, James Montgomery Boyce, and he was talking about the difficulty of outlining John, and he says, uh, it's just as reasonable to just exposit it verse by verse. <laughs> so, yeah. James uh, had the most prominent position in Jerusalem, and um, he had the most prominent uh, role in the, the Jerusalem Council, and yet he writes one letter. So it's interesting. And then Hebrews comes out of nowhere. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it was because Peter lacked skill in writing. Um, maybe it was opportunity. But you can write that down as one of your questions. 
when you get on the threshold of your uh, physical... Right, at the pearly gates. That's right. That's where Peter will be. With all kinds of jokes to go with it. So, All right. Well, uh, next week we will probably do all of John's epistles. Uh, the Apostle of Love. And um, then Jude and Revelation. So why don't we stand up and we'll pray. First Peter, subjecting ourselves to suffering for the will of God. It's easy to do, right? Okay, let's pray. Well, Lord, I thank you for Peter because I love this expectation, this anticipation that um, everything is coming to a head when you, at your appearing, as John says. And that all life for the Christian is to be lived for that day uh, when we will meet you, stand before you, and uh, give an account for all that we've done in the flesh. And so just remind us, Lord, that suffering has a good intended end by you for that day. And uh, knowledge has a good intended end for that day. And uh, so whatever it is, Lord, uh, that we would do it for your glory. So help us, Lord, to think within that framework because you are our worldview. And, um, and we need grace to do that. So give us patience, give us endurance, and um, help us to be assured that all things, Lord, will wind up in your presence and all will be good. So Lord, we love you, we thank you, and uh, thank you for my church family. Just grant them your grace, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, love you guys.